Welcome back to Highly Respected. I'm your host, Scott Greer, and today we're having a special holiday version of Highly Respected because it is a holiday today. It is President's Day, and by that special holiday edition, we are doing only Cognitive Elite questions today. And it's not that was not the intent, but one of the questions we were given today was going to be my main topic today. So I just decided that all of the topics today that we're going to be discussing are from the Cognitive Elite. That's just how great the Cognitive Elite questions are getting that we can have an entire episode based around the great questions we are getting from our smartest and our most brightest listeners that we have. So I will give my Cognitive Elite pitch for what we have today. And a short note about President's Day, I know it's not one of the real holidays in America. The real holidays we have that people actually take off are Christmas, Thanksgiving, July 4th, Memorial Day, and Labor Day. Those are generally the days that people take off. Uh, some people, you know, we do have Easter, but it usually falls it falls on a Sunday. So generally people don't really get that day, you know, either a Good Friday or the following Monday off. Uh, President's Day is one of those uh, holidays that most people don't get off unless you work in government. You know, it's like Columbus Day, Veterans Day. It's definitely not as important as Martin Luther King Day or Juneteenth. Uh, Juneteenth is definitely going to be probably one of the bigger holidays over time. But that is the case with President's Day. But we're going to have a holiday special no matter what. Because President's Day, we got to honor our, our great heroes, the great men who made this country. And it is. So we'll now get to the questions, but I first got to give my pitch. As a reminder, you too can get the power to ask me questions or suggest guests and topics for Highly Respected if you sign up for the Cotton Elite option at Highly Respected Substack. And that's at highly-respected.com. I think the old highlyrespected.substack.com should still work. It'll redirect you to highly-respected.com. And make sure to sign up for the IQ supplements while you're there. And make sure it's highly-respected.com. If you just type in highly-respected.com, it'll take you to an urban streetwear brand. I don't think that's actually highly respected at all. That's a, clearly a violation of the Greerhead principles. But we'll go to the first question today. And the first questions are going to come from our guy, K-Max. K-Max, I like to have K-Max questions at first and then New England refugees to conclude. It's a good way to build ourselves up for the Cotton League questions. But today he offered a question that I was going to talk about uh, as our primary topic. And that's obviously going to be Fonnie Willis. And it's Fonnie not Fanny. I was watching the news clips and they're all just saying Fanny Willis. So I guess we are not calling her Fanny Willis anymore. But he asks, Scott, Fanny Willis or Fanny Willis is the DA in the case in Georgia against Donald Trump. Was there testimony this past week a sign of how weak that case is or of the corruption we are up against? Fonnie Willis did not know where her beliefs was and admitted to corruption with her own election. Will this help Trump at all in this case there or with the jury you expect Trump is still cooked in Georgia? So there's a lot to dissect from this case because it's a sign of just how corrupt magic governance is. Fonnie Willis is definitely not an outlier. She is the norm when you have uh, black officials in charge. When you see, you know, the guy she replaced, the DA she replaced was wildly corrupt as well. And corruption was a huge thing in the in the election in 2020 over this. This guy actually charged two police officers in the shooting death of a black criminal who had fought with him in Atlanta. I think Rayshard Brooks was the name. And it was Rayshard Brooks, and it was clearly an act of self-defense. The guy began fighting with him, had stolen the taser, 
these guys had acted in self-defense, but white cops killing black guy at the height of Floyd mania, they obviously had to charge these guys and they burned down fast food restaurants and other things. And it was clearly an act of self-defense, but this guy was in election year. He needed people to overlook his corruption, so he charged these guys. And we've seen a lot of these other progressive prosecutors that face similar things. Marilyn Mosby, who was a big star back in the 2010s because she was involved in the Freddie Gray case. And I know for some people, they're like, Freddie Gray, who is that? Because there's been so many cases. Freddie Gray was a one of the cases following Trayvon Martin and... Michael Brown and Ferguson. That and now Michael Brown happened in 2014. This happened a few months after. Uh, this happened in spring of 2015. This happened in Baltimore. There, Freddie Gray was a you know longtime criminal who had been picked up on some petty crime charge, and he had been placed in the back of a police van. And while in the police van, it appeared he had tr been trying to get out of his cuffs or something, and he had uh, injured himself, and in that injury. Uh, later led to his death. Uh, police didn't seem to have any role in it. They had video of it. You know, they placed him in the police van, cuffs and all, and then he moved around. And I think there was an eyewitness in the police van who had confirmed that the guy had been, you know, doing some stuff in the police van. And it caused his own injuries. They claimed it was like a rough ride, but there was other people in the police van who didn't report it was a rough ride that, you know, they were swerving around or whatever. And this was a huge case at that time because it started off riots in Baltimore that lasted for roughly a week or nearly a week. And this is the type of atmosphere that it, that Trump had come down from the escalator into and then had appealed to a lot of people because there was a lot of race riots going on in the mid-2010s. And Mosby was the Baltimore district attorney at that time. And she made a huge name for herself because she's like up there. She's like, I'm a black woman in power. I'm, we're going to get after these cops. And then none of the cops were ever found guilty. It was a mixed um, uh, race crew. I think it was uh, roughly half white, half black in the cops who were charged. It was a number of cops. I think it was like five or six. Anyway, she made a big name for herself. But eventually she, you know, conservatives hate her. And over time she had... <laughs> Her and her husband have been involved in a lot of fraud and corruption, and she was recently sentenced, uh, found guilty in a corruption case and fraud case, and had been sentenced to jail for her crime's downfall. A lot of other cases are going on, similar with DAs. Kim Fox has had her own, who also became famous as a progressive prosecutor for Chicago, uh, was most known for Jesse Smollett and making a deal with Jesse Smollett. She has also had a lot of these similar cases. So, and it's particularly with mayors. I mean, probably the most uh, notorious example, recent example we're seeing is this super mayor from uh, Illinois, from a Chicago suburb of Dalton, Illinois. Uh, the woman's name is Tiffany Henyard. And she, I, I wouldn't maybe call it a suburb. I don't think it's a particularly nice area, but it's, a outside, it's in the same county as Chicago in Cook County. And she has been spending lavishly on vacations, doing rap videos. Uh, she's been using police to go after political enemies and people who criticize her. She's also been charging massive fines for businesses that refuse to pay protection money to her. She's also dressing up like Wesley Snipes' character from New Jack City. Wesley Snipes' character in that movie is a gangster and a thug. And she's doing uh, dressing up. She also has a hype man who follows around and is like Flavor Flav with her. Hopefully some of the younger crowd knows and remembers Flavor Flav. I mean, um, public enemy guy who's just there to be hype man. He's like, yo, 
this is dope. And she has her own hype man to go around with her. And they, I think they have a boombox to play hip hop wherever she goes. And she's also, uh, you know, this is a tiny village. I don't think it has much of a tax base. And she's uh, racked up the uh, city's debt to $5 million in her short tenure as mayor. And she's just like hosting all these massive events and using pressure. She also has a criminal record too, which is funny, but they, she still got it. But these are, that's probably an extreme example, but the, this is the example everywhere. There's a, a lot of corruption. They don't feel bad for it. I mean, you could even see this in Fonnie Willis's case. She goes up there and she's like, Mm-mm, this is what black women do. We are tired of racism and I got cash everywhere. I'm spending it on me. And she has zero, you know, shame. There is no self-awareness of her behavior. She's just acting like this is an attack on black women, which is what they all do. They always say that it's just an attack on racism. The Superman in Illinois saying that, that like, y'all, they, they attacking black women in power. I'm a black woman in power. You can't do this. Y'all supporting racism. And then... When Fonnie Willis was, uh, you know, first, you know, having these troubles with, you know, spending lavishly on her and her lover's uh, affair, you know, she went to a black church. I think it was actually MLK's old church and gave this whole speech about how there this is all an attack on a powerful black woman having a relationship with a black man. This is racism at its worst. And that was her whole defense on the stand is like she brought out her dad, who's a former black panther, who said, you know, this ain't racist, but it's a black thing to keep a lot of cash around. It's like, really? Uh, maybe it is, but that's a lot of cash. You know, they're spending lavishly on these vacations. They're paying for vacations, you know, you know, paying for clothes, all this stuff. And massive, massive amounts of cash, keeping no receipts. Uh, you know, they're not saying when they withdrew the money or anything. And it's just like, well, maybe there's uh, something wrong here. And But for her, she feels like she doesn't have to worry about it because, you know, this is a black majority county she doesn't you know when they arrested trump or when he came in for you know when he was indicted and had to take his mugshot you know there was a small protest going out and all the cops outside were black you know this is just black run governance i mean this is how a lot of atlanta is a lot of cities are and but they still you know the media loves that image you know they don't want to follow the you know, corruption and the embarrassment of her spectacle of, you know, testifying. The funny thing is, like, her lover, you know, realized that he was nervous during the whole thing. He's like, oh, yeah, uh, maybe I did that. You know, he was definitely, you know, he's drinking a ton of water. He's sweating a lot. You know, he is definitely nervous about this and is trying to get around. But Fani, you know, there was no nervousness. She's like, I can't believe this. She did this public spectacle of just going and sitting down. and was like, I swear me in. I'm going to testify and tell the truth. And her whole truth, as uh, K-Max pointed out, she didn't know what continent Belize is on. Is like, you know, don't try to embarrass me. But I don't know what continent Belize and uh, these Caribbean islands are on. Uh, it's a little confusing. Uh, but she's uh, going with it. And uh, so we maybe don't have the most intelligent people on the in these. But the point... The larger point, well, I'll get, I'll answer K-Max questions before specific questions, and then I'll go into the meaning of a black run governance and how this highlights what may be in the future. Did this, uh, you know, does this show how weak the case are of the corruption we are up against? I think I'm indicating the corruption we are up against. And will this help Trump at all in the case here, or will the jury 
or with the jury, you expect Trump is still cooked in Georgia. I think this is going to hurt the case. It's all up to this judge who is a Fed stock guy. He's a conservative, but he's also a judge in a black majority area. And his election is coming up. And he knows that if he removes Fonnie Willis for, you know, living it up, which is what uh, I think she was trying to say to her constituents is like, look, you know, they're just attacking me for a black woman. You know, finally got I'm getting in power and I'm you know, making my way. And that's why he let her, you know, run that testimony and, you know, act up and attack the attorney, the defense attorneys who are grilling her, you know, in a way that was completely disrespectful, you know, implying that they're you know, racist and stuff. And then she even one time said, it's like they said, a money hoard. And she's like, oh, what'd you call me? And she thought, said money whore. And there was just, you know, the behavior on the stand was just out, outrageous. Even the liberal media could notice that this was an embarrassing spectacle, but it wasn't done for MSNBC or CNN viewers. It was done for her own voters in Fulton County which are very different from the average white liberal who's watching MSNBC. They did try to have highlights is like, you know, I'm not the one on trial. It's for Donald Trump for trying to overthrow our democracy and I'm protecting democracy. And that's her. That was the line that they had. They try to have these sassy black girl magic moments with her and explaining these cases. There was an MSNBC video running around, even though they did have commentators come on and like, this is really bad. Likely she should be disbarred and taken off the case. And but they still had a video of like her sassiest moments where she just like owned the defense, which you really just have to ignore the whole testimony and the whole scenario to believe that she owned the the people interrogating her. Because otherwise, you know, if, for a sensible person who's seeing you know, there's a certain set of norms and, and how you're supposed to act and governance and a leadership role. You would think that this is a terrible performance. If a white person did that, pulled off the stunts she was doing on the stand, everyone noticed like, man, this person's screwed. That's completely objectionable behavior. The judge would have thrown them out and held them in jail for contempt. But that didn't happen here. She just totally ran over the white judge because the white judge... You know, he's worried about election. And that may be the only thing that saves her here. But I think otherwise it is very good for Trump because I, I think even though the judge has these political considerations, I think it's so egregious that he has to remove her. He has to take her out from uh, seeing over this trial. And if she goes and it's like... in the corruption charges around her or the wrongdoing charges around her are situated a lot on this Trump case. I think it's going to, it may get the whole case thrown out. should be a big deal. Um, it certainly delays it. It was already not looking, you know, Fonnie Willis had already said that this is not likely to happen in 2024. Uh, obviously with all the shenanigans going on, it's not going to happen this year, which is good for Trump. Uh, but it may entirely throw it out because the next DA may not want to pursue it. You know, they may have to do a whole new uh, investigation into it. You know, it really adds a wrench and throws a wrench into the whole process and messes it up and it can be thrown out. So I think this is very good for Trump, even with what we're facing is the political considerations of that local county is that it's a black majority. A judge wants to get elected and 
I think he's up for election in like two or three months, very shortly. And he may just say, oh, well, you know, I want to stay in power. I want to stay a judge. And so I'm not going to I'm not going to go against Fonnie Willis here. And that just shows like how uh, ridiculous America's system is, if that could happen. But I think he he has to know what's going to happen. I think or he has to just know that this is you know, beyond the pale, that there can't be even any political consideration for this. If he does stand with Fani, it is a massive black pill for the, uh, for the whole, you know, system that we have. And that it's also this guy is conservative. This guy is a Fed stock guy. And he, even he can't be expected to do the right thing because he has to worry about his election. He has to worry about his political process. And, it also just shows that like how hopeless it is in certain districts that you can't even expect a fair, uh, fair type of justice. You can't expect a reasonable type of justice to occur in these areas, which has completely black run governance. It's the same going on in D.C. where Trump has has a case coming up, you know, and it doesn't matter if like they could accuse Trump of a murder he didn't commit and they'd probably find him guilty in D.C. It's the same could happen in Fulton County. Uh where his documents case is happening in South Florida, he can actually have a reasonable fair hearing. There'll probably be some Trump supporters among the jury pool, or Trump sympathizers at least, or at least fair neutral people. Um, but you can't expect a fair trial in Fulton or a fair trial in D.C. And that's like that's just the system that we have. And it's obviously a very weak case. All this stuff is around legal challenges to the election. And you are allowed to use the legal process to challenge an election. They didn't overthrow the election. They're just using the courts and lawsuits and other legal means and even signing up people to be alternate alternate electors in the case something happens with the election. This is all perfectly legal. This is not even stuff dealing with January 6th or anything. Even if you there's people who think that you know, Trump had some role in January 6th, which I don't. Um, or the January 6th was the worst thing that ever happened. I don't, I mean, it was just a kind of an unwise decision to have an unauthorized visit to the Capitol for some of these people. I don't think it was really much of a coup uh, or anything of that sort. But even if you do think that, this is completely different. This is just simply them using the legal system to challenge an election, which you are right to do. This happens all the time. We've had this throughout our history. We have never thought that this is some type of insurrection, but they've been able to conjure up an insurrection angle and other things. And, you know, Fonnie Willis has managed to get uh, four people to take plea deals and start testifying against Trump, one of whom is Jenna Ellis's dumbass, who somehow is still a conservative radio host, even though she's whole time, she's like, I'm not voting for Trump. And it's like, I can't believe how Trump's so mean to me. It's like, you ratted out Trump. And it's your whole defense is that you're a terrible lawyer and an idiot. Like, that's what she admitted to in court. And that's a part of her testimony is that she's a bad lawyer and she's stupid. Her own word, her own testimony implies, strongly implies that. And she's like, I didn't know what I was doing. And then she's like a conservative radio host. Like, I think I'm pretty sure on Salem Radio Network. And it's like, why do you have like a, a, a rat against the president? Why do you have somebody who is who is testifying against the leader of the Republican Party and the, one of the most popular conservative figures as like a radio host. And she's like never understands that, you know, that's going to upset people. And she's always like, ah, Trump really needs to earn my vote. It's like 
you are testifying against him in court for for like a non-crime. Like, I don't think I don't think you have right to do this. And then she people Jenna Ellis is another story. I mean, I kind of want to go on a riff on that. That's not really the focus of this question, but I uh, very much one of the worst figures in conservatism. I mean, I've known people who have known her for years, and they all said she was a complete moron, should have not been involved in any of these cases, but she got herself involved. She wiggled her way in, and then she made a name out of herself, and now when you know chips are down, she testifies against him, and she's like, I'm persecuted. And it's like, well, you know, when you when you flip you don't become persecuted anymore it's like you know say you're a political dissident and then you testify and rat out all your compatriots you no longer get that status but uh, that's something people like to who have a personal axe to grind with trump uh, certain desantoids are still like oh jenna ellis is so great she's like even if you uh hate trump i think you should have the intelligence to know that uh, you don't want jenna ellis on your side that uh, that aside, you know, it would be funny if this case is thrown out and there's all these people who test who took plea deals to testify against Trump, and now they're like, "Oh, um, my testimony wasn't really needed." <laughs> it would be another pie in the face for Jenna Ellis and the others, Sidney Powell and the other uh, knuckleheads who decided to testify against Trump. Um, but yeah, that's just a part of the legal system that is going on. I mean, most of this stuff that Trump is going up against is not really crimes. I mean, you look at the documents case. They just said that Biden didn't do anything wrong, even though he did the same thing. Or, and they also said he's not fit to stand trial, mentally fit to stand trial. And then they're like, no, no crime. It's going to be very weird for them to say, well, Trump is a huge difference. There is no real huge difference. Uh, the January 6th stuff, that's also in the D.C. case. That's also built mostly around legal legal challenges using the normal system to uh, question and to challenge the election results which people have done for years and years and years uh, the porn case obviously even liberals admit that there's no real crime there it's like a minor fine at best uh so none of these are real charges but they're using they're weaponizing the entire system against him the real problem isn't so much these corrupt clowns like Fonnie Willis, where their own idiotic behavior jeopardizes their case against Trump. Because, you know, they've been trying to do this for years with Trump, and then they all turn Fonnie Willis into a hero because the liberals are obsessed with black girl magic and strong black women. You know, they've been saying for years and years that they're the guardians of our democracy because they vote so overwhelmingly for Democrats. And then they came out and saved our democracy. And they've just loved Stacey Abrams. They've loved Fonnie. They've loved Marilyn Mosby when she was a thing. And now they kind of forget about her because they're embarrassed by her. They loved Kim Fox at some point. And Kamala's sort of, they've tried to fawn over her, but she's just so unlikable. And she's not really... Um, uh, fully black woman. She's more Indian than black, and that's like a, one of the key factors to understand about uh, Kamala Harris is that you know she, her dad was half Jamaican, but really didn't spend any time raising her. She wasn't really raised within the black American community, even though she did go to Howard and join a black sorority. She's primarily raised by her Indian family. Her name's Indian, uh, and then Canada. So that's more her background. I think that's also what strikes so many people as inauthentic about her is that she tries really hard to act black, but she's actually naturally Indian. So, so there's something similar with Obama's Obama, you know, 
Obama's more self-conscious that he didn't quite fit in with the black American community. You know, he was half Kenyan, half white, primarily raised by his white family. He felt like a true outsider. You know, he didn't feel where, where he belonged. He did imitate, you know, some black behaviors and speech habits uh, to make himself fit in. But he never truly fit in. But in some ways that helped him rise to become president is that for a lot of white Americans, they didn't see him as part of the, the normal corruption involved in black uh, political power in this country because they come from these urban centers. They all have like Fonnie Willis-like behavior and they all have to, they are all involved in these schemes that are sometimes even worse than what Fonnie Willis is involved in while Obama was something very different. And I think that's what helped him become president. But they've been having trouble to find another Obama or another major leader. Like Kamala, Kamala is so unlikable. She's inauthentic. She says stupid stuff. She just doesn't, she is not a popular leader. She's the most unpopular vice president ever. So that's not the person. And they do want a black woman, but the, it's been having trouble finding her. You know, Susan Rice, too white, uh, hasn't really won an off, hasn't won an elected office. Uh, you know, she doesn't really strike uh, as that type of leader that they want. You know, they would love Michelle Obama, and people always think that it would be Michelle Obama to be the one to run. But Michelle Obama hates politics. She does not want to do politics as it actually is, is actually operated in. You know, she doesn't like criticism. She really hates criticism. She cannot take criticism. She doesn't like. Dealing with people she hates, which you have to do in politics. You have to entertain and suffer through all these people that you don't like. Uh, she doesn't like having to make negotiations and deals, which is the art of politics. She is just not somebody who gets, if she got on campaign trail, she would hate her life. She has no real interest in actually running for president, which everyone thinks like, oh, she'll run for president. No, if she was actually serious about politics, she would have been running for office ever since that the Obamas left the White House. Has she? No. She just likes to campaign where she, you know, everyone claps for her. She doesn't have to make any deals. She doesn't have to deal with people she hates. She gets doesn't really get faced that much criticism compared to if she was a candidate. She doesn't want to run for office. They would like her. Oprah Winfrey, another person. But I think Oprah actually really hates politics. She's never been that open in her liberalism in a way that other celebrities have. She's also getting much older. I think she's in her 70s now. And she doesn't want to run. But she would have been a popular figure. And they always talk about Oprah running for office uh, 2016 and 2020. But obviously she didn't want it. And then the other leaders they have are just these corrupt, stupid mayors or people like Fonnie Willis. You know, they have Stacey Abrams who could never win. Uh, they really thought that she would be the one. She didn't really have that much corruption around her as compared to some of these other people. Uh, she seemed, uh, compared to others, she seemed reasonably intelligent and she had a, you know, this kind of, she really fit this mythical caricature of what a, you know, black girl magic that they want from an office. But she couldn't win, she couldn't win governor. She couldn't win the governorship. So she, uh, she was not the one. Uh, and the rest, it's just mayors. I mean, they had such a hard time. The main point I'm doing this is, if, if you see this is a little bit of a sidetrack, is that I want to point out that the real threat to Trump is from someone like Letitia James. And I'm pointing out how Letitia James isn't, may not just stay, is actually not just going to stay New York AG, is that I feel that Letitia James is the greatest threat to America because she has the potential to become president someday. 
maybe in 2028, maybe in 2032. She is, unless there's some like Fonnie Will scandal that happens to her or she fails to win higher office than New York State AG, I don't, she's definitely going to rise to something higher to that. Barring some scandal that to occurs to her, I don't think there will be. Or type of scandal that can actually enter her political career, I don't think that's going to happen. But she, if she rises to higher office, like New York governor, which she might run for in 2026, I would uh, bet a lot of money that she will be the Democratic nominee someday. Maybe in 2028, maybe in 2032. And that's the real threat because most of the, as I'm going through the list, most of these people that they want don't have it. You know, there's not that many black men who can run because most of them are uh, <laughs> in the closet. <laughs> Some of these guys who, who run, like the guy that Ron DeSantis beat in 2018, Andrew Gillum, which there was a remarkably high number of black, I think it was black women who voted for Ron DeSantis. And people always wonder, it's like, that was weird. How did so many black women vote for Ron DeSantis? And they're like, must have been charter schools. And then obviously um, the uh, um, Gillum's Night Out with Gay Prostitutes came out. And then they're like, uh, maybe it wasn't charter schools. Maybe it's the black women could sense this guy. It's on the down low and they didn't want to vote for him. But a lot of the guys are like that are the men or like Jamal Bowman and Cedric Richmond, who are these, uh, you know, almost comic comical level guys who just have too much, you know, machismo. And they're just like, yo, I'm being like this. And they're easily attacked and they're just like too embarrassing to actually run as their main guy. And most white, even liberals would be uncomfortable with voting for those types. So they're not going to vote for those guys. And with John Bowen, his his politics are too radically left for a lot of them. Cedric Richmond has just standard Democrat party line, but he's um, uh, he used to be a congressman. He was involved in the in the Biden administration, but he's out now. He's just too uh, too black, I would say. So it's mainly black women because the people in the black community who are rising to positions of power going to the best schools are generally black women most of the black men are falling behind which is why a lot of these you know when they find these powerful black women whether they're you know they're looking through supreme court appointments you know they're going through all the possible women who could uh, be on the supreme court and i remember uh, uh Tariq Nasheed pointed out that they're all married to white men <laughs> and kamala harris is married to a white man now the ones who are actually in office who are elected to, you know, mayor and to Congress, generally they're married to a black man, largely because this is actually um, politically hazardous to not be married to within their own race, because most of the opposition towards interracial marriage in America now likely comes from black women more than any other group. This is especially true with black men. If a black man is running in a predominantly black district and he has a white wife, you can guarantee he's not going to win. And Barack Obama, you know, when he was, you know, he definitely thought about political career and he at one point considered uh, being engaged to a white woman. And this was after his uh, experiments with homosexuality in college. But he realized that this would be, this would, this would, you know, put a hard ceiling on his political career. He realized he had to marry a black woman to advance his political career. And a lot of that was not just, you know, appealing to white racism or worried about white racism. It was more about winning over the black community because the black community would never accept a man who married outside the community. I think it's even similar with the women. I think a lot of the, um, you know, if they're running for office in a black majority area, I think a lot of the women would be put off by that fact. Kamala wasn't in 
quite running, didn't build her career quite off a black majority area like Detroit or Fulton County or Memphis and something of that sort. And I think she was able to get away with married to someone outside the community. So that was something with her. Uh, so this is a lot of discussion going. I need to get back on the structure till Letitia James. So you don't really have to worry about Fonnie Willis's case. You don't really have to worry about somebody like that. It's not going to... that per, And Fonnie Willis is never going to rise up higher than what she is, already is. Like, Georgia would never vote for somebody like that. They didn't vote for Stacey Abrams, who was less, uh, far less black in her behavior and, and, and her politics and the way she conducted politics than Fonnie Willis. So she's never going to rise. But Letitia James, much, much bigger threat. One, she is the most effective liberal lawmaker or liberal official in this country. Because right now, she is significantly hurting Trump, the NRA, which are probably the two biggest enemies of the left. And she's going after Vidar, which Vidar probably doesn't have as much uh, name recognition as obviously as NRA and Vidar, as Trump. But Vidar, she can say, I'm going after these racists. They want to have limited immigration and I'm using state power to, to harm them. And she can highlight this. If she ran for office, she could just say, I took down Trump. I took down the NRA. I took down these white supremacists at Vidar who, who don't like, who want to restrict immigration. And liberals would just love that. And she's a black woman. This is what the black girl magic can have. And as long as she doesn't have, you know, comical level of corruption or some type of weird political scandal. You know, and the one thing that a lot of New York State AGs have been always these Democrat or these people that may have presidential aspirations. Uh, but they were generally brought down by sex scandals. Um, There's Elliot Spitzer and Elliot Spitzer in the 2000s, who people saw him as a as a guy who's going to rise up, and he got caught with prostitutes. Uh, there were Schneiderman a few years ago who got me tooed by some of these random women he was sleeping with. Uh, that there's always those problems. I don't think Letitia James is going to have that <laughs> that issue. James is not married, similar to Stacey Abrams, which I think that's actually better for some of these uh, black female uh, candidates is that, you know, it, it, she doesn't have to worry about having a white husband that, you know, that might aggravate the black community. You know, she doesn't have to worry about <laughs> having, you know, her black husband or her lover, like in the same with, with Fonnie Willis being involved in some corruption. She's just there. And I don't think that really hurts her in a way that it does with male candidates or other candidates oh eventually we're going to have like a spinster uh, politician who rises up i mean this is very common in europe most of the spinsters over in europe are at least married but they don't have any biological children like Angela merkel didn't have any kids um, several other of the leaders in europe don't have any children uh, i believe that um, one of the recent prime ministers of the uk didn't have any children either you know, they've had several of the past few years, but one of them didn't. At least one of them didn't. And so I don't think that's going to be a major issue for her. But she has a degree of competence and skill that is lacking in some of these other leaders. And that is what they're looking for. And Letitia James, if she rises up to president, that would be a real end of the republic moment. I would be, I probably would have to flee this country. <laughs> Because you have to think, it's like, this is a woman who, you know, just with the New York State AG's office, look at what she's done. Now imagine her with the DOJ under her thumb. 
and she's able to get things done in a way that others aren't. That would be a terrifying moment for our country. The only thing that may stop her is her age. She is remarkably old. She is 65. She's going to be turning 66 this year. So she, her chances of rising up to, you know, she might be too old by 2032 to run. You know, she'd be 74. She'd be turning 74 that year, which now you have, you know, obviously we have older people running, but her time to run maybe in 2028. So that may be the one thing that saves us is that she has a very narrow window to advance to be running for president. But I can definitely see her as a presidential contender and what she's been doing with Trump. Because, I mean, last week, you know, she got a massive, massive judgment against Trump. And this is... Uh, she might not even have to run for governor to just launch her presidential campaign. I mean, Buttigieg was a serious candidate, and he was only mayor of South Bend, Indiana. I mean, New York State AG is a much bigger role, and might as well just run from from that position as she, as what she already has. And so that's the real threat from a type of black political leadership we have: is somebody who can transcend the limitations and the comic, the comic, <laughs> the. Uh, Comic level of corruptions that you see in some in Fulton County, Detroit, Baltimore, those type of leaders, and somebody who can appeal to white liberals and show that they have at least some type of effectiveness and confidence. That is what's really terrifying. As if you have somebody like Letitia James, that's really the type of person they want to run. They were so they really wanted Stacey Abrams to run. They really want a black woman as the leader of the party. They just haven't found that black woman yet. And that person may be Letitia James. There could be some others that are rising up now. Maybe they somebody who gets governor or senator in the next few years who could be uh, in that role. But that is who they want. And that could be the blue Caesar that we've always worried about. You know, I've sometimes said it could be Newsom. And Newsom would be, you know, really authoritative and how he could use power. But Newsom may not become president. And maybe Newsom turns out to be, you know, Newsom is very much worried about getting elected and being popular. He may turn out to be more moderate than we expected, than we would have expected if he ever became president. I don't, he would be a terrible president, but I don't know. He may not be quite the end of America as we expect. But I definitely somebody like Letitia James would be a nightmare for our country. It would be a total it's over moment if somebody like that became president. And that's something that we have to be definitely worried about. But when it comes now to circle back to Trump's legal problems, I think it's largely good what's happening. I mean, he is getting some of these cases knocked off. Documents case is definitely going to be delayed till next year. This case is definitely not happening in 2024. They're trying to do the, the Stormy Daniels case next month. Even if he's convicted in that, that's not going to hurt him in the election because people, everyone knows that that's a joke. That's not a real problem. And everyone's already aware of this stuff that Trump is doing. You know, he had sex with a porn star and he paid her off. Like nobody cares. Uh, and so that's not even, even if he get, does get convicted in that, that doesn't matter. The only thing that may be a problem is if they're trying to put him in jail from that, that that's a bridge that will be crossed. I don't know if they're even going to have that trial next month. Doesn't have to worry about that. All it comes down to is the DC case. And, it's looking if the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court is not likely to agree with his presidential immunity uh, defense that Trump is trying to have and get before them. But that's not that's 
that still doesn't, even if they rule against him, that still doesn't mean it's over. It's more about how long he can delay that case. Because if that case goes to trial in July, he is getting convicted. Because it's DC. Look at look at what's happening in New York. You know, with the what happened in his case for his business deals in New York. Look at what happens in all these cases that you see in these very blue areas. They could they could try Trump forever whatever crime they want. They would find a guilty verdict in D.C. So he will be convicted, and that is the one where polls show there is some effect on voters. Now, will that be enough an effect on voters to cost him the election? That remains to be determined. But it is Trump's biggest problem in this election. And I've always said this: if he does not get convicted, he will win the presidential election. If he is convicted, it lowers his chances by how much we don't know. He could still win, but it definitely lowers his chances. So the Fonnie Willis stuff is very good news. But I think the real problem we have to keep look out for is people like Letitia James. And the only thing that may save us is her age. <laughs> and they're the, the small window of opportunity she has to run for resident. So that is it for KMAX's first question. That was a long answer to his first question, over 40 minutes. But we'll go through his other questions that he has. He's got more great questions. And this is also another uh, news event from last week. Is like, Scott, with the shooting for the Kansas uh, and the Kansas City Chiefs parade, it turns out the shooters were magical people. Well, they're just saying they're teenagers. They're not releasing their, any identification about them. They're just saying teenagers. Like clockwork, when the shooter is magical, the left brings up gun control and ignores the race of the shooter. When the shooter is white, they blast up the white pathology and how all shooters are white males because they ignore the race every time the shooter is not white. In truth, if America was missing this one magical demographic, wouldn't our ground crime be the same or close to Europe's? The left misses one key ingredient to why our gun crime is so high. Well, yeah, I think you mean murder rate, but uh, we probably it'd probably be the similar to Europe. I mean, Europe has much harder gun control. It's very hard to get a gun in, in most of Europe. So, uh, yeah, we would have. Uh, yeah, no, it'd be very different if it was the case. We'd, pr- we'd probably have a slightly higher murder rate. And definitely have a higher gun crime rate because we have uh, we have the Second Amendment. But no, it definitely be a lower when it comes to this shooting. Yeah, they all, they always like to even bring up gun control, even if the shooter's white. They always bring up their you know certain um, narratives they want to have. But it is funny how they've covered this case because there's been no interest in the suspects uh, at all. They just said teenagers, and they're like, oh, okay. And there were clips of these guys, you know, the black guys who've been arrested. And, you know, it's obvious who these guys are, but they're just saying, oh, it's teenagers. They didn't look older than teenagers, but maybe they're just 17. And I think they just wanted to hide the fact of who did this. And they just said, oh, it's guns. Uh, there was even these stories where it's like saying like, oh, it's a Muslim guy open up. And these two kids used illegal guns to fire on him to protect other people. Obviously, they didn't protect other people. And, you know, somebody was killed in this. And, you know, there was over 22 people, you know, there was over 20 people injured. Uh, It's a major thing. But there's no, zero interest in these shooter suspects. And this is very odd because, you know, most school shootings are committed by juveniles and teenagers. And they release the suspect's info. They tell all about this kid. You know, and it's always a juvenile. And I've always found it funny when... You know, there's been these conservatives like we're we're gonna stand up to these school shooters. We're gonna prevent them by never releasing the ID and names of these guys because we they don't want the we're not gonna give them the publicity they want. But really, what happens is that the left wing media uses this 
to say, oh, we're not going to release the info and identities of these people. And generally when they do that is because they're non-white. And this is obviously the case here. The police aren't doing this because the police don't want the bad publicity of like black kids shot up Kansas City Chiefs parade. They don't want that publicity. They're just saying teenagers, which that can mean anything. And this is the first mass shooting ever committed by a teenager where they have not released any of the names. This is this is a huge news event. This is Super Bowl parade. And they don't want to release these guys' names. This is unprecedented in American history where they've just done this. I mean, there's been times when people are, you know, minor crimes or some minor murder where they don't release the suspect's name. This time, they, there's no, no concern for this. And there's, I, you know, I've been, you know, I'm in my 30s. I've experienced school shootings throughout my life. And they've always released the names, even when the guys weren't killed. They released the names. They arrested some 16-year-old or something. And now black privilege ensures that your name is never released. And so they're now just saying, let's like youth crime. Uh, this is a sign of youth crime. They shot other youths and something's going wrong with the kids. It's like, I think there's a particular kids going wrong here. So this just kind of shows. And whenever this case first happened, I was like, this is obviously just magic behavior. Some guy stepped on some dude's shoe. Fighting broke. Uh, they started fighting. Then they started shooting each other wildly. And even if you saw the, you know, the, the amount of wounded, amount of dead, you're like, no, this isn't a targeted shooting. This is just them firing wildly at each other. This always happens when they engage in this type of and these types of brawls and fights. So yeah, no, it's um, yeah, it, it's it's outrageous. I think it's the bigger issue is how they're hiding this fact and they're not really wanting to tell the public about it. And basically, just guns came to alive and started shooting on their own. And the real problem is guns rather than the people wielding it. And you have to look at the people wielding it rather than just the inanimate objects themselves. So it is. So we're never going to find out who these guys are. And the case is just going to be hidden. And it's just going to be pointed out how dangerous gun crime is and how all these rednecks can either turn in their guns because of how dangerous what's dangerous going on. And you could even see the Kansas City Chiefs guys start to come out doing gun control ads. Maybe that'll be the new thing that they bring out Travis Kelsey for for the uh, 2024 campaign is that he does a gun control ad for Biden or something. Uh, it's not out of the realm of possibility. So you could definitely see that uh, happening with them. Uh, but yeah, it's a it's a crazy it's a crazy uh, dynamic going on. It's the first time I've ever seen something like that. I mean, you could say, well, they're legally obligated to not release the names, but you know, the news media can you know do some investigations, see who these guys you know they're on tape getting arrested before a lot of people, and there's just no concern for seeing who these guys are, and they're just given as teens. Um, which I guarantee you in a school shooting, they would have never just said a teen was arrested. Uh, they're generally like to promote his name. They go after his family. They, they talk to the parents. Everything about them is known for some reason. Uh, in this case, you nothing is known about these shooters. So we'll keep going on to K-Mac's last question. Uh, you're, uh, he says, Ben Shapiro gave a usual civic nationalist position in this tweet video where he says, I only care about immigrant values, not the race. If the left wishes to import 50,000 liberal Swedish people versus 50,000 base people from Ghana, I would take the people from Ghana. That's what 
paraphrasing what Ben Shapiro is saying. Is this something you think Shapiro really believes that he, the values do not come from race at all? Everyone is a blank slate. What election has there ever been where a majority of uh, people of color vote Republican? Yeah, and the question is, is because um, there's an old tweet from Shapiro where he says, I don't give a damn about the browning of America. I just care about political values. And that's what he he essentially doubled down on. And he said, I don't care about the browning of America. It's really what people believe in that really matters. And so he's worried about all the liberal Swedes that could be invading this country, which we're not having a high rate of liberal Swedish immigration to this country. And I'm just worried about what political political beliefs they may have and i think there's there's a couple of problems with this one it the one issue is that it imagines that everything wrong with immigration is just about elections which that's not the case at all it transforms the entire country you know it transforms the quality of life in the country it transforms the ability for you to believe you're a part of this country and that everyone that you share something with the people around you And, you know, maybe one day you wake up in your community and people aren't really speaking English and they look very different from you and they have very different values and culture from you. And it's not just simply about who they vote for, because one funny thing about immigrants is that the less assimilated they are, the more likely they're going to vote Republican. They've done polls on Asian immigrants and the ones that were not born in America and are less fluent in English are more likely to vote for Republican than the Asians who are born in America and speak English fluently. I don't know how it is for Hispanics because Hispanics, it's particular communities that are very, you know, have a strong, distinct community within America. Tejanos are, you know, very, are pretty strong and supporting Republicans are becoming more uh, stronger Republican demographic. Cubans are a strong Republican demographic. It depends. It goes from area to area. And I I probably would say it's not quite the same with Hispanics because I think for Hispanics, a lot, unlike with Asians, Asians generally assimilate to being white liberals or white uh, liberal middle class people when they come here. So their parents may have not really spoken English, lived in a bad area where they had to deal with crime, and thus they were more likely to vote Republican and be more conservative while their kids are, you know, went to an elite school. They adopted the opinions of those around them, and they're really worried about white privilege. While with Hispanics, they're not really going to elite schools. They're moving to rural areas and working around working class, lower middle class whites, and then they assimilate into that. They start listening to country music, and thus a lot of some of them start becoming more conservative. That's not the case with all of them, obviously, but that's the case with some of them. So when it comes to the politics, I mean, if you're worried about uh, Republican chances and are who they vote for one thing is is that they're remarkably with the immigration population it definitely helps democrats but it doesn't help democrats as much as i think we expected because one a lot of these immigrants just don't vote that's also the case with hispanics their turnout is terrible uh, and also they're becoming more surprisingly more republican as republicans become more anti-immigration uh, it's even probably uh, maybe will even be the case of some among some of the Asian populations that we're getting here. Even maybe some of the African populations are coming here. I mean, most African immigrants are more likely to vote Republican than foundational black Americans. That's not necessarily a point in their favor. I mean, that's not the case for all of them. Somalis, obviously, that's I don't think they're a strong Republican demographic, but it's generally the ones um, like Nigerians who come on uh, over on a legal immigrant visa 
generally more likely to vote Republican than black Americans, but very few black Americans vote Republican. So it's not that hard to have a greater chance of voting Republican than the standard population. Uh, so I, I think that's one way of just saying, well, they're political values and ideas. And it's like, well, you know, it's hard to predict that. And in a lot of cases, if you look at what Latin America is like, if you look at some of these African countries that are coming from and elsewhere, you know, these countries, they have certain political values. A lot of them are, you know, riven by corruption. They actually have legitimate socialists who want to mass do massive wealth redistribution. I don't, you are taking a huge gamble by bringing these people in and then they bring along their values and their political history with them and American politics could start reflecting that. But I think the real issue is just how it transforms our country. It really makes us more atomized because if you're in a community where people don't look like you, they don't share the same values of you, they, you know, there's very little in common. You just focus on your own little eternal life, don't really care about the community. You allow the community to be transformed in a way that you don't recognize, where you feel like a stranger in your own country. And it breaks down the chance of a real unifying and a national identity that you can be proud of with mass immigration. And that's really the type of issues that need to be, I think, need to be focused on here. But Shapiro, a lot of these guys and conservatives just think that everyone's interchangeable parts, that, you know, you could be guatemalan and you could and there's no real difference between a guatemalan and sweden when there's clearly a huge difference between them and who you would want and for us we'd rather have a liberal swede because politics can change of somebody you know they could maybe be a, a liberal in sweden but then they come here and experience what america's going through and they become more conservative you know politics are not ingrained in stone of all these people and also that swede is more likely to be not on welfare not you know taking care of themselves when you go out and see them in public you could see it's like oh this is a nice upstanding citizen that i could relate to you know talk to you know more likely to speak english better and that's this type of things you need to worry about but it's always um a stupid dynamic they want to create because it's like they're always worried about left-wing europeans coming over here this is not a threat we have to worry about even if we did have a lot of them coming over here that would not be a huge problem because they'd be uh, taxpayers, not on welfare, you know, contributing to society in a positive way. They may have some goofy liberal beliefs, uh, but, you know, a lot of these immigrants who are coming over here are also left wing and vote and vote Democrat. And a lot of it's and they help also with some of the uh, dubious electoral methods Democrats have to win elections for themselves. So I just think it's a, a stupid dynamic that Shapiro has, but Shapiro has to do that because in conservative to maintain respectability and mainstream success in conservatism, you have to pretend that you have to be fully colorblind and pretend that there's no real differences between people. But even though Shapiro said recently that there are inherent group differences that explains differences in, in behavior among people, but then when it comes to immigration, you'll just say, well, Browning of America will still be a great country, is that no, we will not be the same country because America is great because of the fun, fundamental whiteness character to the country. And if that is eliminated, we're no longer America. We're a different country. And you can look at Latin America, you can look at Brazil, you can look at all these other places where whiteness is fully in retreat and it's a terrible place to live. And that's going to be our future with the Browning of America. 
And it's far bigger problem than simply whether people, whether these new American, new Americans are voting Republican or Democrat. Moving along, this question is from Dollar Bill. Dollar Bill asks, are we in for the summer of Floyd 2.0? It's an election year. It's the only matter of time before the weather warms up and a magician gets limited by law enforcement. Could the Democratic Party media establishment entertainment industry trifecta decide that a new summer of protests and riots is what's needed to drag Biden over the finish line if it looks like Trump will not be in prison cell before November? The Floyd revolution kicked off a wave of global Afrolatry that is still not dissipated. As I was reminded recently when I was out in public and saw the depressing sight of a young white woman wearing a large gaudy medallion in the shape of Africa. That's a very bizarre sight. What was... What was she wearing that for? I remember that was always a... um, When Afrocentrism was a big thing among um, blacks in the 80s and 90s, particularly, I I think this kind of fell out of favor. They would... Because I've talked to older relatives who were in college at that time, and they would have... They'd wear these necklaces with Africa, you know, the shape of Africa around it, and they're like, what the hell is this that they're wearing? Um, that's very weird for a white woman to wear that. I don't understand that. But I don't know if that might be Floyd related. But are we in for a summer Floyd? I would say no. Now, I don't know this would be very bad if that turns out. But there was unique conditions with uh, Floyd. There could be riots. But I don't think the riots actually helped Democrats. The riots helped Trump win in 2016. What people forget is that, and I alluded to this earlier in the podcast, is that Riots in 2014, 2015, 2016 really helped Trump win because it created this image, impression of America as falling into chaos and racial chaos, and that they needed a strong law and order president to restore order to this country, which Obama wasn't doing. And they felt that Obama was responsible in encouraging these riots. And generally, he made these statements showing a lot of sympathy and saying these people have legitimate grievances and stuff. And that really agitated people. Now, Floyd, Summer Floyd, I don't think really helped Democrats. It didn't really quite hurt them, but it didn't help them. The bigger issue was lockdown, was COVID hysteria that helped them. The main issue with Floyd is how it, the depressing reaction from most Americans is that, you know, most Americans, you know, started joining these, you know, they made black blocks on Instagram. They did all their stupid behavior and it was just, it was more of a demoralizing effect on Americans than it helping Democrats win the election. Uh, it created too much chaos. And also, the thing is, it did sort of undermine Trump's authority in the country because Trump wanted to use the military and the military said, no, we're not going to use it. And it made Trump look like a weak leader. But now, if we had Floyd 2.0 under Biden, that would be terrible for Biden. That would hurt Biden because that would further this image of this country as a country in chaos. We've got the border invasion and now we've got riots all over the country. Democrats don't want that to happen. And we don't really have the what really caused. Well, what helped cause the riots was that people were going nuts under lockdowns. People's brains are still messed up from COVID and lockdowns. And. A big thing that drove people to start rioting and taking the streets was just people were going stir crazy in their homes locked down and their lives have been upended. And this cause around Floyd just became the focal point for unleashing that outrage and anger. And I think that there was, you know, America was losing its mind at that time. And that's also why we had, 
you know, January 6th was sort of a response to that. It was also the fact that people were really upset about the lockdowns and then they found another issue to an issue, say, whether it was George Floyd's death or it was the election was the straw that broke the camel's back. And then that's what unleashed these aggressive protests or in the case of for BLM riots. They were riots. They were not peaceful protests. I think uh, for January 6th was more peaceful than the BLM riots. And so that's, and we don't have that factor right now. Now, if there's more lockdowns and some other crazy stuff happening, maybe. Uh, could there be local riots and say maybe there's a police shooting in some city in America and it, it has like a Ferguson-like riot or a Baltimore-style riot it was happened in 2015? That can always happen. Uh, but that actually hurts Biden. That, any type of riots that happen between now and the election are going to help Trump. And so Democrats are not going to want that to happen. Um, they didn't really help Biden in, in 2020. Uh, besides, it, I think it demoralized a lot of our own side. And maybe it could have been the... Some people have had this theory that it was used as an attempt to try to coup Trump. And Trump didn't fall for it by escalating matters. I don't know. I don't really believe that's true. But it did... It did demoralize people to extent, and it did make people fully BLM. But if if it if riots happen now, it's a completely different circumstances. It would be a backlash against BLM. It'd be a backlash against crime, against disorder, against what's happening within Black culture. It would not be good for Democrats. So, um, no, I, I don't I don't think we're in for summer. Floyd 2.0. I think it was unique circumstances of 2020 that allowed for nationwide riots to happen on that on that level. And it was mostly caused and it was driven a lot by the lockdowns and people just being upset and wanting to take the streets for, you know, not being able to, out, to go out and party and having to be masked everywhere and all of these things that are lives being restricted. And so you're just not those conditions aren't there right now. And so we're not going to have it. And even if riots did happen, it would benefit Trump. So that is my answer to that. We still got some more questions to go along. Um, I have to look up what this guy's pseudonym is. Hold on. The questioner did not include a pseudonym. Make sure uh, for so uh, those people, because I don't want to don't want to reveal your real names. But so make sure if whatever name you want to have. Make sure to put it in the email. Uh, I looked up this is Appalachian. So he asks, Scott, your opinions on Trump's statement on NATO regarding paying 2% of a country's GDP in order to be eligible for Article 5 protections. Frankly, I think it's a fair point. If a country is afraid of military conflict, it should be at least be able to fund its own military by 2% of its GDP. Looking at countries along the Russian-Belarus borderline in NATO, every country here pay, pays their share because they recognize the threat. The only delinquent countries are the ones that have zero threat of military invasion like Italy, Germany, and France. Do you see this as turning our backs on allies? Are the U.S. finally asking for our allies to pay their fair share? No, it's, it's totally legitimate. Europe needs to start paying for this because... The thing is, they don't want to pay for this because Europe, they, European, a lot of Western European countries are more like retirement <laughs> communities than actual, than the type of countries they used to be. All their spending they want to have on the welfare state. And that's legit. I mean, that's what their people want. They don't want to spend on military. They're not very militaristic cultures anymore. And they always, even though they may feel that Russia is a problem or something, they feel that they don't need to spend on the military. And that's why they keep relying on America. It's why Europe's never going to kick 
American troops out or they're never going to leave NATO because they want America to provide their defense because that allows them to spend all their money on welfare, uh, on the welfare state. But demanding that they start paying 2% is necessary because we can't keep spending all this much money. We spend so much on military defense and it makes no sense for us to be paying this amount of money to protect Europe and they're not paying anything for it. So we're essentially offering them defense for free and then they complain about Russia and they complain about what we need to do. No, they need to start paying their fair share of what's expected for a NATO country to be in NATO. And so Trump's totally legitimate in this. And it's very ridiculous that our, our, our media always gets mad. It's like, oh, how, how dare we demand Western Europe pay their fair share for us providing defense for them? No, we, they need to pay their defense. So I'm totally on board with Trump. I always, I've always appreciated Trump's commentary on this. And so I'm totally aligned with Trump on that matter. And no, it's not abandoning our allies, you know, that... They need to start. Europe really needs to start being more independent of itself and starting exerting itself rather than acting like um, you know a retirement community where America has to come and provide for them and do things for them. They need to start exert, asserting themselves and actually showing some degree of independence and actually developing their militaries and being more independent in that regard is one way to do that. So they do need to spend more on defense. And a lot of their welfare money is now not going to their people. It's going to these immigrants that are coming there and the generous welfare state in Europe is turning into a huge magnet for migrants from all over the world, you know, reforming their welfare states to not just be uh, providing free, a free, enjoyable living for these migrants may help, will help them in the long run. So they should be spending more on defense rather than uh, welfare spending because a lot of that's not even going to their own people. So this person is anonymous poutine enjoyer is his name <laughs> maybe he may have another uh pseudonym we'll call him ape he asks i've he has a long question so i've recently finished reading the long slide that's by tucker it's a collection of essays he has tucker carlson i enjoyed it cover to cover and recommend it it's a nice collection of stories some of the stories stuck in my mind more than others in particular i cannot stop thinking about what Tucker wrote about abortion and children with Down syndrome. I figured I'd ask your thoughts on it. The short of it is that he identifies abortion to be a murderous eugenic policy. I don't think it's inaccurate. The basis for that is that the rationale is first and foremost financial. It's expensive to raise children with Down syndrome or, or other disabilities. Therefore, the state concludes it's best to kill them before they are born. Taken to its logical extreme, Tucker argues that argues making eugenic policy solely based on the financial value of a life is bound to promote policies where individuals with disabilities are actively oppressed and maybe even killed outright. The last of this, last of which is surprisingly not hyperbole. It exists already in some forms where they let disabled individuals to die. My first question is broad. What do you think about this? Should something be done about the disabled question? And then he gives his own opinion. He says, I believe that we should do what we can to prevent their conception. Still, the slippery slope of pursuing policies beyond that will eventually be inhumane. America doesn't really do this. This is more of a European question. But I, you know, Iceland, I think it's Iceland that announced that there's like no Down syndrome births. And even the left here was not happy with that. If we were using abortion, you know, whether it's eugenics practice in America or not is a complicated question, but here we really don't like the idea of it being used against disabled 
uh, against whether you have Down syndrome or some other disability. We re- it's really unpopular. When the left starts talking about this, even their own side winces at it. 20 years ago, they have been more open about this idea, and especially they liked saying that abortion reduces crime. Now, if you make those arguments today, everyone calls you racist, and it's like bigoted to say that. Um, RBG used to say, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg used to make those arguments in private. She's like, oh, abortion's great because it reduces crime. Liberals can no longer make those arguments. So when it comes to the disabled question, it's... I think on an individual level, parents sometimes do that. If they find out the kid has some disability, they definitely, and through genetic testing uh, and pregnancy, they sometimes abort. But it's very unpopular to do so. And it's not really socially acceptable. I think the social in America, the society would say you should still have that kid. So it's not really being used in quite the eugenics that you may be in an unintentional eugenic effect here but our society is not a pro-eugenic society whatsoever so even when it comes to uh the disabled question i don't think it's really that if you're arguing about what how europe uses it i guess tucker would be in that regard and maybe he is he has always been greatly upset about this i remember at the daily caller he would sometimes talk about this and how he got really horrified by this. But I would strike, if you were open about this in America, it would strike people as inhumane. And abortion rights for both pro and anti is situated in the values that Americans really highlight or emphasize, and that's individual rights. And so whenever the pro-choice, pro-abortion side wants to talk about abortion, it's like my body, my choice. It's always that. And even for a lot of the pro-life side, they say, well, the fetuses, the baby's body, their choice, they're not even given a choice. And it's a lot about individual rights and appeals to what grants greater equality and greater individual rights. And that's generally how it's couched in uh, thinking about a greater common good or social benefits of, well, abortion will reduce crime or maybe greater abortion increases crime or Maybe greater, more abortion, you know, leads to fewer disabled people. That's just not a conversation Americans want to have. It's all built on the individual level. It's all built on what would happen to you in the situation or what would you do in the situation if you were the baby or if you were the mother, you know, and that's really what it comes down to and how Americans pursue that question. So now going on to the follow-up question, what do you think about eugenics in general? Does the government have a role to play in improving the gene pool of its population? Do we have a personal duty to the gene pool in terms of how we view our relationships? The usual eugenics distractors either make a point of inhumanity, which I think we can avoid, or it's government bad type of argument, which I find frivolous. Obviously, the government what we want is good when discussing policy issues. Are there other considerations? I'm generally pro-eugenics. That's, uh, that's actually an unpopular opinion on the right because... A lot of the influence we've had as Alex Jones types, which, you know, I'm largely positive Alex Jones. I'm not really an anti, but he is very anti-eugenics because he's always like, the globalists are trying to use eugenics. You know, the, the Bilderbergs, they, they're all in eugenics. Bill Gates trying to eugenicize us. We, we got to end that. And so they're very, that's really had an impact. And also social conservatives, a lot of the pro-life side is very anti-eugenics. You know, they've always... Their main argument, one of their main arguments against abortion is that this is the government coming down and trying to eliminate, you know, blacks and disabled. They compare it to Nazism and say they love saying 
your abortion is eugenics and so if, or pro-abortion arguments using utilizing eugenics generally isn't very popular on our side because we're actually in a society that's very anti-eugenic in our model because we feel that we really don't like the idea that people are born and you know they're genetically determined that there's like very little choice in how you're going to end up we're very much of a society that believes that environment and choice determines who you are rather than genes or you're fated to be how you are at, at birth uh we're very so we're very much anti-hereditary to an influence even and that's always been a difficulty for us i think for the true right or the dissident right is that we're very into hereditarianism i think most people are uh, more sympathetic to eugenics than I, maybe the general population even though i think when you talk to people in private uh certain demographics i think even some white liberals of a certain age or certain political persuasion would be more open to eugenics arguments in private but publicly no one likes to engage in those discussions i mean with our government i mean our government used to pursue eugenics prior to world war ii uh, there was a certain government that changed that, uh, that made those uh, very unpopular in America, that made us uh, less eugenics. But our government right now could ever do that. I think it's an individual level. It has to be an individual level. It has to be a cultural. It has to be something that you inculcate among people that you're telling them. It should be, we should be really on a personal level and through our education is that we need to be really educating people to be marrying the right people to have the best kids possible. You know, you shouldn't be marrying somebody who's got a long history of mental illness in their family. Maybe they've got some really terrible genetic disorders that are going to be passed down. Maybe that's not, well, some may be okay. I think mainly what happens in America is that people don't marry wisely is that they just, you know, Oh, I'm so enthralled with this person. And they have like a whole line of problems. There's a lot of mental illness for that person. They're not very smart. They may be good looking right now, but they're you look at their mother and maybe they're not going to be very good looking in the future. And so people don't really think about like, oh, I wonder how my kids are going to end up if I have children with this person. And I think it's more, it's very much an important question that should be happening on a personal level where you're thinking, what will my children be like if I decide to start a family with this person? And a lot of people don't think that. They just like, well happy right now we're gonna have kids and then there's all these problems of having the kids you know they're juvenile delinquents you know they're not very bright you know they you know have some really bad mental illness issues and some other things and i think it's really you just have to start from people when they're wanting to start families is that i'm marrying right i'm marrying you know this person comes from a stable family they're reasonably intelligent they're hardworking. you know there's no real problems coming from them you know there's no criminals in that in that side of the family or something and then you're building that up and you're trying to understand that a lot of what how we are is determined at birth and it's determined by our genes and when you come to that realization you will then start to marry right and to have a and that's a positive type of eugenics because it's just simply you are using choice to make to choose the best spouse possible and to then build up a family with those foundations that 
come with the understanding that a lot of who we are is determined by genes. So that would be my thing. I, I think our government at this point, it, if anything, our government would be designed for dysgenics. It's like we need, a, we need to support more of these populations. Like there's so much systemic racism. We need to ensure that whites are not having enough. It needs to have fewer kids and that minority populations are having more kids. Even a lot of the uh, natalist policies that were proposed by conservatives were about like taxing uh, regular people and then ensuring we have more Down syndrome children, which I think that should not be the government's responsibility, whether that should be a personal decision, whether you have, you know, a child with uh, some type of defect of some sort, that's up to the parents. Uh, I, I don't trust our government at this point to <laughs> make these to be eugenic in any way. I think you could, the only thing you could say is that maybe that they should not restrict genetic testing or these type of new technology that allows people to have the best children as possible or that they, that they want. I think that's mainly what we can hope for with the government in terms of eugenic policy. So that is, I think that is all the questions. And finally, we can end on New England refugee. I'm going to do one more double check. Yep. It looks like, and I don't think Mystery asked any questions this week. So I think it's just, we're ending on New England refugee. We always love New England refugees questions. And so he says, hey, Scott, send a link about how the United States may needs to reinstitute the draft and national military service. It's from Real Clear Politics. It seems some see a need to reinstitute a draft. This is a laughable proposition in many respects. It would not work in our country. But we were for in a more ideal state. I kind of like the idea of mandatory military service. What are your thoughts on the draft in our situation? And the idea of general, we're never going to have a draft. It would be so unpopular. Is that one thing about America is that people are content with it? Is that they're not? There's no duties imposed on citizenship. And if we started imposing duties like you have to serve in the military, and considering how we have a lower pool, a dramatically reduced pool of people who are able to serve because of obesity, drug problems, you know, all various other things. I mean, the amount of uh, fighting age males who are physically fit to serve is very low. It's not even the majority of the population. So uh, that is something that we can never implement. And if we ever implemented it in our current state, it would be uh, just about breaking down barriers and ensuring poor, more people are more even more anti-racist than before, and it'd be a disaster. It'd be a waste of money. But in a, in a better state, compulsory military service, I'd be more open to it. Like uh, requiring people to do like nine months or a year of military service or maybe some type of deferment to some other type of service. That could be something. I mean, we, you know, in a better time in America, you know, we did have the draft, um, uh, in the cold war in the early years of the cold war and we ended it after vietnam but it did create a higher degree of service and a higher degree of patriotism in that country and we were a much better country than when we had it and a lot of other countries still do this i mean finland still has compulsory military service pretty much everyone has to spend i think it's like a year in military service and get the training and I think that's, and they do that because they're always afraid that Russia may one day come invade and they'll need every male to be a part of the war effort. I don't think that's uh, a likely proposition, but they, you know, that's a, a lot of Finnish identity is built around that. 
And so is some of these other border countries. Uh, but yeah, I'd be in favor of it in a more ideal state to have either a draft or, you know, requiring every male at 18 to do some type of service for a year, generally favoring military service in that regard. Uh, in a lot of ways, like Europe, but I'm very much opposed to bringing back the draft for our current in our current state. So that is it for highly respected today. We got to had a lot of great questions. We're going to have more great content for the future in this in the near future for the rest of the week. So be on the lookout for that. So until next time, stay respected. <laughs> <laughs>